everyone. If you're here for the first time, let me also extend to you a warm welcome to Chantilly Bible Church. Uh, my name is Izzy, and I'm one of the deacons here at CBC, and it's a real joy and a privilege for me to continue with you all through our study uh, of the book of Ruth. One of the central questions we struggle with when we read the book of Ruth is whether God is kind. If you're like me, you've grown up in the church, we're taught over and over again that God is kind. But when life becomes difficult, is God kind? When our circumstances get better or worse, is God still kind? When other people help or comfort us, is that from God? Two Sundays ago, Pastor Milt started our sermon series by setting up the story of Ruth in chapter one, where we find the widow Naomi with Ruth clinging to her, returning to Bethlehem in a hopeless situation. We hear Naomi say in verse 21 of chapter one, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi had lost her husband, her two sons, and the life that she had built in Moab. And now Naomi and Ruth had nothing. And as Milt preached, we should commend Naomi for how honest she was with herself, with her friends, and with God. When we hurt, it's okay to cry out. Hurting is not a sin. And then last Sunday, Pastor Mike preached on chapter two. Naomi arrives at the beginning of the barley harvest. As far as we can tell, Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, used to own property in Bethlehem, but most likely when he moved to Moab, the property was taken over by someone else. Under the customs of those times, Naomi and Ruth had no rights to reclaim the land for themselves. And without land to grow crops, Naomi and Ruth were facing starvation. So Naomi sends Ruth off to glean where she can, and she, by chance, comes upon the field of Boaz, a man of compassion and integrity, a man of faith. He provides for Ruth, a Moabite sojourner, a refugee. According to what's written in Leviticus 19.34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But Boaz just doesn't do the minimum required by the Old Testament law. We see that he is a real heart of generosity towards Ruth. And so starting in chapter two, verse 20, we see this faint glimmer of hope. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our kinsmen redeemers. Why is Naomi so helpful? What is a kinsman redeemer? Well, both Pastor Milt and Pastor Mike have alluded to this, but let's go a little deeper into this explanation. So in Deuteronomy 25, one of the Mosaic Old Testament laws specified that if a brother died childless, it was the duty of the surviving brother to marry his brother's widow 
in order that his brother's family would have an heir. Uh, the fancy term for this is called levirate marriage. The idea was that if a widow died childless, their family line would end. But if the surviving brother married the widow and produced children, those children would be able to continue the family line and inherit their dead father's land. In ancient times, where having offspring was an economic necessity, a matter of life or death, this was a common practice. In Leviticus 25, another Mosaic Old Testament law specified that if someone became so poor they had to sell off some other's family's land, it was the duty of the nearest relative or kinsman to come and redeem that land so that it would remain in the family. And the nearest relative in this situation is called a kinsman redeemer. So by the time of Ruth and Boaz's day, these and other laws had been combined and become part of the local custom around Bethlehem. Boaz, if you remember, was not the brother of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. He was only a close relative. So strictly speaking, leveret marriage did not apply. Although, as we'll see later, it did apply in an indirect way. The right to redeem family property first lay with the closest relative, then the next closest, and so on and so forth. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, but he wasn't the closest relative. There was another man who was nearer. Okay, now, with that background, we can finally start to read chapter 3. Remember, when we read the Old Testament, we want to understand the story the way it was meant to be understood. We don't want to take our 21st century mindsets and make it interpret the Old Testament for us. We want to read the Old Testament for what it said to its first listeners. Let's turn together to chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all you say I will do. Now, remember what I said about not using our 21st century mindset. To be clear what's happening in the story, Naomi is not sending Ruth to seduce Boaz. Naomi is sending Ruth to ask Boaz to be their kinsman redeemer in a way that was proper and would be understood clearly as this request. What was unusual was that it would be done in secret, at night, and that the request would bypass the nearest relative. Now try and understand that this was a very bold move on Naomi and Ruth's part. During the months that Ruth worked in Boaz's field, Boaz didn't make a move. He did not offer to be their kinsman redeemer. It's not clear why. Maybe Boaz was too busy with the harvest. 
Maybe Boaz was shy. More likely, since Boaz was much older than Ruth, he probably thought Ruth wasn't interested in him. And also, as we will find out later, he wasn't the nearest relative. The first right to be a kinsman redeemer did not reside with him. So this is why Naomi sends Ruth on this nighttime mission. Notice in chapter 2, Naomi says Boaz is one of their kinsmen redeemers. In fact, we will learn later that there's someone else who was a closer kinsman redeemer, that Naomi doesn't want that man to be their redeemer. Uh, we'll find out why later in chapter 4. Naomi wants Boaz to be their redeemer and Ruth's husband. Now, think about it. If Ruth approached Boaz in a public space during the day, the other kinsman redeemer might find out and demand that he be the one to redeem, since he is the closer relative. Then Boaz would be publicly forced to give the right of redemption to another. Or if Boaz rejected Ruth's request, she would be publicly humiliated. And that's why this has to be done in secret, to tell Boaz to assert his role as kinsman redeemer even though he's not first in line. But the question is, will the plan work? Now, John Piper has an important observation on Naomi's plan. He says this, two things stand out in Naomi's strategy in verses one through five. One is that she has a strategy, and the other is what that strategy is. The sheer fact that Naomi has a strategy teaches us something. People who feel like victims don't make plans. As long as Naomi was oppressed, as long as she could only say, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she conceived no strategy for the future. One of the terrible effects of depression is the inability to move purposefully and hopefully into the future. Strategies of righteousness are the overflow of hope. When Naomi awakens in chapter 2, verse 20, to the kindness of God, her hope comes alive. And the overflow of that hope is strategic righteousness. She's concerned about finding Ruth a place of care and security, and she makes a plan. One of the reasons we must help each other hope in God, Psalm 42.5, is that only hopeful churches plan and strategize. Churches that feel no hope develop a maintenance mentality and just go through the motions year in and year out. But when a church feels the sovereign kindness of God hovering overhead and moving, hope starts to thrive and righteousness ceases to be simply the avoidance of evil and becomes active and strategic. What Piper is saying here is that when you remember that God is sovereign and that God is kind, you will begin to hope. And when you begin to hope, you begin to make plans, the kind of plans that God will bring to completion. People without faith take no chances. They just sit around and wait for life to happen. People of faith take risks because they know that a good and kind God 
rules over all. Let's go back to verse 6. So she, meaning Ruth, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the heap. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Why does Ruth uncover Boaz's feet? Uh, Old Testament commentators are divided on why Naomi instructs Ruth to do this. Uh, one reason, it could be a symbolic custom of that time where it is part of the request for redemption. Or, practically speaking, it's cold outside and uncovering somebody's feet is going to wake them up eventually, right? You ever take a blanket, sleep, and then your feet become uncovered and then you wake up even though you have the blanket over you, right? Um, uncovering somebody's feet is probably a better way to wake somebody up than tagging them on the shoulder while they're asleep or yelling boo, right? I've not heard of many marriage proposals that started with scaring someone, right? But here we are. Boaz is startled by the presence of a woman at the threshing floor, especially at night, laying at his feet. Ruth says, spread your wings over me. Now, notice a reference to chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz comments on the Lord spreading his wings over Ruth and Naomi. In Ezekiel 16, 8, the prophet uses an analogy of a husband and his bride to illustrate the kind of love that God has for the people of Israel. Uh, it says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you're at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. The idea of spreading wings over someone is to protect them and provide for them, but in the most compassionate, the most kind, and the most loving way possible. Like in Psalm 63, 7, it reads this. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Here, Ruth is asking Boaz to save her and her mother-in-law from a life of poverty and despair. But she's also asking Boaz to love her and to provide for her as a husband does for a wife. Let's pick it back up in verse 10. And he, Boaz, said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So did Naomi's plan work? Yes, it did. And the lesson here is that people who put their hope in the Lord will not be disappointed. But I want you to notice how Boaz reacts. He notes Ruth's integrity in not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Ruth approaches Boaz because he is a kinsman redeemer. And not only that, but someone who is a provider, a man of compassion and integrity, a man who is faithful to God. It doesn't matter to her that he is significantly older, and it doesn't matter to him that she's not Jewish. They both know each other to be a person of godly integrity. And what's Boaz's reaction? He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. He's saying that he would be honored that Ruth would ask him to be her kinsman redeemer. Then Boaz tells Ruth not to fear, which is what God tells us to do all the time in the Bible. Do not fear. And then Boaz promises to redeem her. But how will he do this since there's another relative closer than he is? Remember when I told you that the people who hope in God have a plan? Because Boaz's hope is in God's faithfulness, Boaz comes up with a plan. And then to emphasize the solemnity of his promise, he gives away some of the barley he has just threshed so that Ruth and Naomi know that he is serious about his promise. And then he tells Ruth to depart before morning so that it will never be known to the city that she made this bold move. While there's nothing immoral about what she's doing, he doesn't want anyone in the city to gossip and hurt Ruth's reputation. It is the Redeemer that is supposed to make the first move, not the ones who want redemption. Boaz is protecting Ruth yet again, this time protecting her reputation in case this plan doesn't work. But listen to Boaz's words in verse 13. He says, 
as the Lord lives. Boaz's hope isn't really in his strategy. His hope is really in the ever-living God. So Ruth returns to her home, and she reported to Naomi all that took place. She, included her, she concludes her account by quoting Boaz that it would not be right for Ruth to return to Naomi empty-handed. This is the same word used back in chapter 1, verse 21, where Naomi declares bitterly that Yahweh had returned her from Moab empty. Same word. But from now on, Naomi will no longer be empty, but she will be full because of God's redemptive purpose carried out by Boaz. And church, I, I want you to understand how unusual the book of Ruth was for its time. In ancient societies, and the Israelites were no exception, it was a patriarchal society. Men owned property, men ruled over cities and nations, and men wrote the laws. Women were second class, treated like property. But here, in God's word, we have this amazing story where two strong women of godly character are the heroes of the story. It's a powerful reminder of what God can accomplish through the lives of women of faith. There's a few takeaways from the book of Ruth that I really want you all to think about as we end this sermon series next Sunday. Um, the book of Ruth tells a love story set in the time of turmoil and trouble. Uh, but it's much more than this. Um, it's a story of God's faithfulness to Naomi and Ruth. But in telling this story, the book of Ruth, like the rest of the Old Testament, is also foreshadowing God's faithfulness for us. God promised Abraham that through him, all nations would be blessed. Here, Ruth, a Moabite, whose people were the enemies of the Israelites, becomes part of the Jewish community in Bethlehem by marrying Boaz. Not only that, because Boaz is the great-grandfather of King David, Ruth becomes part of the royal line of King David. And not only in the royal line of King David, but also in the royal in the family line of Jesus, as told to us by the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Now, does this idea sound familiar to you? The idea that a foreigner is chosen by God to become part of his people? It should. It foreshadows the New Testament, where God's people are not just from one ethnic group, but from all peoples, of all languages, of all cultures, God's people are not defined by who they are born to, but whether they are born again. When we read Ruth, we should be reflecting that it has always been God's intention to bring glory to himself through every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And God uses what happens in the book of Ruth to accomplish his divine purpose, even as Naomi 
Ruth and Boaz have no idea. They don't know that the decisions they make in the story, decisions of faith and trust, are used by God as part of his redemptive plan. Second, in the book of Ruth, Boaz is willing to be the kinsman redeemer. Unlike the nearest relative, who is unable to redeem Elimelech's inheritance for Ruth and Naomi. So what does Boaz do? Boaz substitutes himself for the nearest relative to enable Naomi and Ruth to recover the property that once belonged to their family because Naomi and Ruth can't redeem it themselves. Now, where have we heard this idea before? The idea that redemption requires substitution. In Genesis 22, Abraham is commanded to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son when God provides a ram stuck in the thicket so that Isaac doesn't have to be the sacrifice. God's act of substitution fulfills what he commanded Abraham to do. In the book of Ruth, Naomi's nearest relative is unwilling and unable to be the kinsman redeemer. So God provides that Boaz meets Ruth so that Boaz can substitute himself for the closest relative and accomplish the redemption. In the same way, we are unable to redeem ourselves. And therefore, God makes a way for our redemption. Christ substitutes himself as an atonement for our sin dying the death we deserve to die so that we could be redeemed and live the life we were meant to live but were powerless to live on our own. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Lastly, remember the question that I posed to you at the beginning of this message. The book of Ruth resolves a question people have always had of God, that is, is God kind? As Mark Deaver of Capitol Hill Baptist puts it, are people and circumstances kinder than God? Is God less kind because of what Naomi has gone through? And this book answers that question with a resounding no. In the book of Ruth, nowhere is there a mention that God is doing anything. And yet, as we read this book, we were meant to understand that God is at work in every chapter. When Naomi lost everything, Ruth clung to her side. When Ruth and Naomi had nothing, Ruth happened to be gleaming in Boaz's field. When Boaz did not offer to be a kinsman redeemer, Naomi, whose eyes of faith were opened by God, hatched a plan with Ruth. And Boaz, because he was a man of God, understood that it was his place to be a kinsman redeemer. And as we'll find out next Sunday, Boaz uses a risky strategy to fulfill what he promised to Ruth, a strategy that God uses to accomplish his redemptive purposes for Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Pastor Mark Deaver of Capital Baptist Church writes this, God is exonerated from the charges Naomi leveled against him in bitterness. 
He was always working in faithfulness for the good of his own, even if he was working quietly and invisibly to Naomi's eyes. Remember, even while she was complaining, she had Ruth by her side and the barley harvest beginning all around them. And over them both was a God who is both sovereign and kind. Remember, church, God is always working. He is always keeping his promises, although sometimes it may not seem like it. I didn't plan this to be part of the sermon today, but um, as many of you know, uh, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City, uh, he passed away Friday night uh, after a very public, very painful a three-year battle with cancer. Uh, many of us here, I think, are both in shock and in mourning uh, because we all knew um, this day would come. Uh, Tim Keller was like a pastor for pastors and a formative influence for me and many other Christians who wanted to engage our modern culture with a hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Tim Keller did this with grace, humility, and absolute kindness. I actually met him in person several years ago, and I had this recollection of someone who was the same person in private as he was in public. He never let fame or popularity change who he was, because in the end, it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. In his last week of life, Tim said to his family, uh, he said this, I am thankful for all the people who have prayed for me over the years. I am thankful for my family that loves me. I am thankful for the time God has given me, but I am ready to see Jesus. I cannot wait to see Jesus send me home. Although the book of Ruth is a love story, I think Tim Keller would remind us that this book is meant to point us to reflect on God's love and faithfulness. And uh, Tim Keller had this to say about God's love. He said this, The only love that won't disappoint you is the one that can't change, that can't be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or of how well you live. It is something that not even death can take away from you. God's love is the only thing like that. Looking back on Tim Keller's life, I would say, I think he would say that the only thing that makes our stories make sense is God's love, his faithfulness, and his purpose for us. Our lives may be our story but they only make sense when we understand that it is for his glory. The disappointments we face, the storms of life, they will seem meaningless to us unless we shine the light of God's glory on them. And by casting this light in some way, in some mysterious way, we will come to understand that in this life and the next, 
that God was working through every circumstance, every heartbreak, every trial in our life. This is God's promise to us, and it is a promise that he will keep. And this is the reason for our hope, not our circumstances, but the faithfulness of our God. Uh, Matthew West writes a song entitled, My Story, Your Glory. And I want to leave you with these lyrics so that when you hear it on the radio, you'll be moved to reflect on the story of Ruth and your story. Uh, the chorus goes like this. My story, your glory. My pain, your purpose. My mess, your message. In all things, I know you're working. One life, one mission, one reason why I'm living. All for you, not for me. My story, your glory. All of me, all for you. Let all I say and all I do point to the one who changed my life and let me speak the legacy I leave behind. Amen. As the worship team comes up to lead us in our final song, um, I'd like for all of us to bow our heads, close our eyes, and, and pray together. Gracious and Heavenly Father, thank you for the message of the book of Ruth. Help us to trust in your everlasting faithfulness, not in our circumstances. And for all of us here, as we're walking through life, whether through good circumstances or bad circumstances, Lord, light every step. Light every step this week, light every step this month, this year, for the rest of our lives. Light all of our steps with your grace and love and mercy for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.